Please turn your Bibles this morning to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, it's on page 942. If you need to use the Bible underneath the seat, friends, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's why those Bibles are there for your use. Uh, if you have happened to join us and you don't own a Bible, well, you don't only get to use it this morning. We would love for you to take it home and use it for as long as you're able to, as long as that thing holds together. So please, please do grab a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, I think it's incredibly fitting uh, that the, the final sermon preached here at uh, 3673 South Bullard to the Saints of Redeeming Grace Church uh, is from Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, given the impact that Romans uh, had on our church's theology, uh, preached from this pulpit so many years ago and reshaping our church, I, I, I think it's poignant and, and fitting that we're opening God's Word to Romans this morning, and particularly in God's providence to a, a, a sermon text that is so obviously gospel-rich and laying out a vision for the Christian life. Uh, if you were to ask our members who are here at part of our church from 2009 to 2015, and you were to say, hey, what is, what is kind of the primary thing that, that God did at RGC over, over those years of theologically kind of revitalizing things, they would like you to tell you something like this. Well, God gave us a deeper understanding of the gospel and the doctrines of grace, and God gave us a, a better understanding of the, and more full understanding of the local church. I think it is, as Steve and others have told me, it was kind of during those years uh, that we as a church began to understand all the implications of the good news in our life together, in our lives uh, and personally, both in our theology and our ministry. You know, if I were asked to, to preach a one-off sermon, kind of a single sermon, on the, the topic of how gospel theology affects our daily lives, I'm confident that our text today, Romans 5, 1 to 11, would be on the short list of go-to passages for this topic. So again, I just think there, there's a touch of symbolism to close things down here at this location by looking at this text together. If you're here for the first time this morning, friends, you are, you're coming in again at a unique time in our church's life, given our relocation, but it's actually a good time to jump into Romans because Romans 5 seems to be a pivot point in Paul's letter. Uh, there's a few clues that tip us off to this fact. Uh, first of all, uh, beginning in chapter 5, there, there's a shift in Paul's tone. Uh, thus far, his writing style has largely been argumentation, hasn't it? And setting forth the case of how wretched sinners can be have a righteous standing with God. Paul's exhausted every angle, didn't he, to get his, his point across. He even debated uh, an imaginary Jewish opponent, who I affectionately named George the Jew, uh, to prove why salvation doesn't rest on our pedigree or our works or anything else done by us. It rests solely on what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection in our place. God justifies us. He, he declares us righteous. He declares us innocent instead of guilty through faith alone in Christ alone. Well, now as we, as we turn to chapter 5, Paul's tone becomes much more pastoral. The, the yous of argument now become the we's of mutual participation. In these next four chapters, Paul helps us understand all of the blessings, all of the benefits afforded to believers in Jesus. However, the most obvious way we can see this pivot in Paul's approach isn't really his style or his vocab. That's not the most obvious way. It's really what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, all that I've been talking about thus far, 
Here's why it matters. Here's why it should revolutionize your life. Peace with God, friends, is just the tip of the iceberg. Because both in our text today and in the rest of chapters 5 to 8, Paul unveils benefit after benefit, gospel blessing after gospel blessing that is available to those whom God has declared righteous in Christ. Friends, let me just encourage you with something before we read the text together. If you want to mature in your understanding of all that Christ has done for you, if you want to grow in your experience of God's love, uh, if you're particularly going through a, a season of spiritual dryness or, or struggling with discouragement in your Christian life, maybe you're, you're grappling with doubts about the love of God, park your car in Romans 5 to 8 for a while. Stay there, and I guarantee what you read, it will not discourage you. You will not be disappointed, and it just very well may change your life. Let's read together Romans 5. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 11. Remember that that Paul has just concluded his argument in chapters 1 to 4 by writing in verse 25 of chapter 4 that Christ was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I don't know if you noticed as we read, but there are three themes that bubble to the surface uh, as particularly important in Paul's mind and therefore what the Holy Spirit wants to, to communicate to us regarding these blessings of justification from these first 11 verses of Romans 5. The first thing that rises to the surface is peace with God. Do you see that? This theme of peace with God bookends the passage. It's it's how Paul began. It's the first blessing that he mentions in verse 1. And then it's how Paul concludes the passage in verses 10 and 11 by highlighting our reconciliation to God. Reconciliation is just a fancy word with a very simple meaning. It's the restoration of sinners who are enemies of God to a place of peace and fellowship with him. The second theme that kind of weaves its way through this this passage is is hope. Do you see that? In fact, I think you could make a strong argument that that hope is not only the dominant theme of of these 11 verses, but really the dominant theme of Romans 5 to 8. Because we've been justified by God, nothing can get in the way of our reaching glory. Not suffering, not death, not our struggle with sin, nothing. What God has begun in us, he will bring to a triumphant conclusion in the end. We have hope. 
The third theme that that weaves its way through these 11 verses is is how Paul expects us as Christians to respond. How are we to to respond to this new relationship of peace and the hope of glory? He expects us to rejoice. To rejoice. Three times Paul mentions that rejoicing is the intended result of God's grace in Christ. Literally, this word rejoicing means to boast or to exult. It's talking about a a confident joy. What should mark our lives as Christians is confident joy through Jesus. We rejoice in hope, verse 2. We rejoice in sufferings, verse 3. And most of all, we rejoice in God, verse 11. I think the main idea of this text that I pray is the main idea of the sermon today is this. All that God has done in Christ to save you should infuse your life with confident joy and an immovable hope. All that God has done in Christ to save you, to to reconcile you to Himself, to give you access to His grace, all those realities should infuse your life with confident joy and an immovable, unshakable hope in Him. Three points this morning. Number one, Rejoice in the assurance of future glory. We see that in verses one and two. Rejoice in the assurance of future glory. Number two in verses three to 10, rejoice in God's work in your suffering. Rejoice in God's work in your suffering. Number three from verse 11, rejoice in God himself. Three ways we rejoice in the assurance of future glory, in God's work in our suffering, and in God himself. Beloved, I pray that God uses his word today to cause your heart, to cause our hearts to explode with the confidence and assurance of all that God has done for us when we consider our great salvation. Number one, rejoice in the assurance of future glory. Paul begins in verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into, by faith into this grace by which we stand, or in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, friends, we're going to look in a second about what all of these, kind of each of these items mean on their own. But I think there's a reason that Paul stacks them together one after the other. Paul is, is kind of fusing them together like links on a chain. God's past work in justifying us our present enjoyment of peace and grace through Christ and the unshakable future that lies before us. Do you see that? You see that in verses one and two? Like this is a, this is a package deal. What God did in the past in justifying you grounds your reality in the present and prepares you to enjoy all that he has for you in the future. They're inseparable links in the chain of salvation. Friends, I cannot express how dependent your Christian maturity is on grasping the theological relationship that Paul lays out here in verses one and two of all that God has done, all that God is doing and all that God will do. In fact, I go so far to say that a massive key to the Christian life is understanding the past, present and future implications of the gospel. It's not enough to to experience past forgiveness if, if present peace and future hope aren't also part of the game, all of it is vitally important to your growth in Jesus. So let's look at what each of these statements mean. 
First of all, Paul writes in verse 1 that because God has given us this righteous verdict, he's justified us, we are now at peace with God. The obvious implication there is that before justification, we weren't at peace with God. Paul spells it out further in verse 10, didn't he? Where he writes that, that God reconciled us when we were his enemies. So devastating was Adam's rebellion against God that it severed any possibility of fellowship and communion for the humanity whom Adam represents. God created Adam and Eve in a perfect relationship of of peace, shalom, and fellowship with him. They walked and talked with God. They knew him intimately in a perfect relationship of love and trust as the very purpose of creation itself. But when Adam spurned God's loving rule in the fall, friends, the peace that that humanity experienced in creation, it was shattered. It was severed entirely. For the rest of time, no man or woman born in Adam is in a relationship with peace with God. Instead, we're all born into a relationship of enmity and hostility. You know, throughout the scriptures, God is pictured as a warrior against his enemies. And in a tragic sense, because of the fall, God's enemies include every human, since all are born in sin. In his holy wrath, God is rightly angry at sinners, since he is at war with evil. No one has peace with God by default. So many people today like to think that they're good with God. God is love, right? That means he must be predisposed to treat me with with kindness and favor. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, well, I've always had a tight relationship with God, right? I pray. I I go to church every now and then. I try to be a good person. But friend, just because you think you're good with God doesn't mean that God is good with you. To presume to have a relationship with God on your own terms is to severely misunderstood the, misunderstand the magnitude of his holiness and the magnitude of your offense against him. The words of Isaiah 59.2 that Casey read earlier are really an apt summary of our relationship to God without Christ. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Friends, if you think about it, separation from God was the very first symptom of the fall, right? Adam and Eve heard God coming in the garden, and what did they do? They hid themselves. The very first act of the fallen will was to hide from God, and all of Adam's race has followed him behind the trees ever since. The terrifying reality is that that if God left us to ourselves, we would not want to find the way out. We would be content in our sin to be estranged from our God. But thanks be to God, he is a God of initiating love. He came after Adam and Eve and clothed their nakedness. And he promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush evil and restore the peace with God that their sin had broken. Throughout salvation history, our God provided temporary means of peace with him through the sacrificial system in Israel and the day of atonement under the old covenant. Year after year, the high priest offered up the blood of a a bull and a goat to propitiate, to satisfy the wrath of God for sins. And yet there was no lasting peace. How do we know? 
because they had to do it again next year and the next year and the next. Our God proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah that the seed of the woman promised to Adam in the beginning, well, he would be called the Prince of Peace, that he would give himself to death for his people so that his chastisement, Isaiah 53, his chastisement for our sins would bring us into a covenant of eternal peace with God. Friends, it's with this thick biblical tapestry in the background that Paul writes, since we've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises of peace, God initiates our reconciliation to him. You know, normally when reconciliation happens in a human relationship, it's because the offender has reconciled to the offended, right? Canaan, you slapped Coop. Say, I'm sorry and make things right, right? But in the case of sinful humanity and God, it's not that we, the offenders, made amends with God, the offended. It's that he, the offended, made peace with us through the work of Christ, God is the one who initiated and carried through with the reconciliation. He offered his son to die in our place with the son willingly taking the blow of God's justice that we deserve. So beloved, you need to understand what Paul is saying. It's not just that your legal status before God has changed to righteous in Christ. Now the very relationship with him has been restored. It's not merely that you've been declared innocent. But because of that, God has brought you back into his loving arms. He's made enemies his friends. That's why when Paul writes about peace with God and this idea of reconciliation, both here in Romans 5, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, friends, he is not talking about a subjective feeling. In fact, reconciliation is not grounded on your feeling of peace at all. If you're like me, your feelings are all over the map when it comes to peace. One day we're warm to God. The next day we're cold. One moment we're rejoicing. The next moment we're grumbling, right? One moment we resist a temptation only to fall to another just hours later. If peace with God were based on our feelings or our performance or our circumstances, we'd all be in huge trouble. But friends, your relationship with God is not based on how you feel like at all. As the hymn says, my love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Peace with God is based on God's unchanging character and the finality of Christ's work for you. Period, end of story. What Paul is saying, friends, is hallelujah, the war has ended. God has laid his weapons down. There's no more enmity between God and those for whom Christ died because Christ's death satisfied God's justice and wrath for them. He made peace through the blood of his cross. So that means practically that your peace with God is not on a dimmer switch. It's not on the dimmer switch of your performance. It doesn't burn brighter on your good days and dimmer on your bad. When you stumble and you fall into sin, you may impair your experience of this peace. You may damage the kind of the, the tangible intimacy of your relationship with God. But friends, this blessing of peace in the gospel means that nothing 
Listen, nothing on, in heaven or on earth can sever what God in Christ has reconciled. So when you sin, and you will, maybe even today, or tomorrow, or this week, you will, I will. When you sin, don't be terrified by the prospect of God's disfavor, that somehow he's picked his weapons back up and aimed them again at your life. Just repent of your sin and turn back to him, knowing that his love will undergird you and keep you and forgive you. You have peace with God both now and forever. Paul continues with an additional benefit of our righteous standing before God in verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So our justification doesn't merely assure us of a a new relationship with God. He's also given us access into a new realm, a new domain. Friends, before Christ, we were in the realm of sin and death. We lived under its dominating power. We couldn't help but obey its impulses. We were enslaved to our passions. We lived under the fear of death. It loomed over us like a shadowy specter. But now in Christ, Paul says we've exited the realm where sin rules We've entered the realm where grace reigns. That means that all God's actions toward us, just practically all God's actions toward you, friends, are only and forever actions of kindness and love and care. He loves you like he loves his son. On Super Bowl Sunday afternoon, some of you know this, I actually went to State Farm Stadium to try to gain access into the Super Bowl to watch my beloved Chiefs play in the game. And at the end of the day, I was unsuccessful. The tickets were too expensive, and I ended up coming back home to watch it with my family. Uh, This is a true story. You're not going to believe this, but I had this one particular exchange with at least two different scalpers outside the stadium. The scalper said, give me $2,000, and I've got a guy who can get you into the game. I was like, what do you... What do you mean? Like, I, I get, you have a guy. Like, I, I get it. He's like, I got a guy at the back entrance. I, I guarantee you can get in. It's like a side door. It's like, do I get a ticket? He's like, no, but you're in. Like, it's like, well, what would I do then? He's like, well, you could stand in the concourse. You can find an open seat. You know, so, so, so I, said, I literally said this. So I said, you're telling me that you've got the Super Bowl equivalent of a border coyote that can get me into the game. He said, that's right. Like, no shame. (laughs) Now, friends, as tempting as that offer was, I just kept envisioning the headline, good, you're a pastor, arrested (laughs) for trespassing into Super Bowl 57. I also imagined the nervousness that I would feel all game long at the possibility of an usher asking to see my ticket and being exposed to the fact that I had illegal access to that game. I had no legal right to be there. But friends, what would have happened? Let's just imagine this. What would have happened that if while I was kind of milling around, depressed outside the stadium that day, I wasn't depressed. I was just milling around. If what had happened because nothing that I had done, Commissioner Roger Goodell dispatched one of his staff to find me. And the staff member took me by the hand. He led me through the gates. And he said, John, you're with us. You're with me. The commissioner wants you to watch the game for free at no cost to you in his suite. Now, friends, imagine that type of access, right? Legit, lavish, 
free. I mean, you would have, <laughs> you could just guarantee that I would have enjoyed all the benefits of that to the max. That's exactly the type of access to God's grace that you have in Christ. It's not illegitimate access through a loophole in the system. It's legit, rightful access through Jesus. It's as if Jesus takes our hand and through our union with him by faith, he leads us into the very throne room of the Father and he announces to all the universe, this one is with me. My death for his, my life for his, my righteousness for his, he belongs here. And notice, Paul writes that this is grace in which we stand, which implies its permanence. It's firm and fixed and secure. It's access to grace that began at your conversion and that will stretch into eternity. And that's why Paul caps things off at the end of verse two. We have peace, we have access, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If God has so reconciled us to himself now and granted us this VIP access to the domain of grace, why would he stop in the future? He can't and he won't. Because of Christ's work on the cross to secure our justification and our reconciliation, we rejoice at the, at the prospect of certain glorification. Friends, this, this hope that Paul says we have, it's not wishful thinking. That's how we often use the word hope in modern English, right? I hope the weather's nice tomorrow. I hope the Suns finally win an NBA championship. Uh, I hope this relocation goes well. It describes what we want to happen without the certainty that it will. But friends, that is not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is something closer to a firm assurance or expectation about the certainty of a future reality. Remember what Paul said about Abraham? In hope, he believed against hope that God would keep his promise. And what does that mean? That Abraham just kind of wished for the best outcome? No, Paul says Abraham was fully convinced that God would keep his word. That's what biblical hope is. It's a resolute conviction of the certainty of what God has promised. In this case, what God has promised us through the work of Christ is nothing short of future glory. We rejoice in the hope, the conviction, the assurance of the glory of God. We carry with us as Christians the certainty that one day we will perfectly enjoy and reflect the glory of God that Adam forfeited in the fall. The glory that each one of us exchanges in our false worship and sin. Paul told us in Romans 3.23 that all of sin and lack what? God's glory. And because we lack God's glory, we lack any hope of eternal life with him. But all of that was reversed in an instant when Jesus died for our idolatry and he arose victorious in glory. By faith, we are united to him. Now in Christ, again, his death is our death to sin and his life is our life to live in part now and in full one day. I wonder if some of you are here this morning with a, a flickering hope. Maybe a, a particular sin has its teeth in you like a dog locked on a toy. No matter how hard you try, you just can't get it to let go. Brother or sister, don't be content to sin Certainly, wage war against it, but don't be in despair either. Because one day, the clenched teeth of sin on your life will release its grip forever. 
That sin struggle will be incinerated in a blaze of God's glory. The hope of glory means practically that there is a termination date for anger, for bitterness, for worry, for pride, for laziness, for lust. It will end. From the time Jesus returns and into an infinite eternity, you will never again fail to perfectly reflect God's glory with your life. It will be said of you what was intended of humanity in the beginning. Now I see what God is like. I see the glory perfectly. There it is. It's returned. So take heart. Lift your eyes to the cross and the empty tomb and let that vision catapult your heart to future hope. Rejoice in the assurance of future glory. Number two, rejoice in God's work in your suffering. Verses three to 10. Maybe over the last few minutes, You've been sitting there thinking, oh, really, Paul? Like, uh, take a seat, buddy. You know, you want me to re- rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Well, just, just sit next to me for a few minutes and let me tell you about how awful my life is. Let me tell you all the, that I've lost. Let me tell you all the pain I've experienced. You can keep talking about your, kind of your pie-in-the-sky glory, but the rest of us are here in the darkness still. Well, it's like Paul anticipates that, that type of response and gets ahead of it in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Friends, I realize how nutty from a purely human level this verse sounds. Excuse me, Paul, run that by me again. You want want me to rejoice in, in what? You want me to boast or exult or rejoice in my sufferings? That is crazy town, man. And of course, the scripture is not insinuating that we that we enjoy terribly hard things that we get some sort of masochistic pleasure from illness or heartache or loss, brokenness, not at all. Rather, Christians rejoice in suffering because we understand that the final destination of glory can only be reached through the road of suffering. This was the pattern for Jesus and it will be the pattern for all of his followers, suffering and then glory. Suffering is the very means that God has given us to go deeper into his grace and thereby strengthen our hope. I see really two big categorical reasons why Paul says that the people of God rejoice in suffering. Number one, because of what God does. Because of what God does. We see that in verse three three and four. In the midst of pain and heartache and loss, friends, God is at work. Paul writes in verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So notice the first thing that God works in us in suffering is endurance. It's the quality of keeping on, right? No matter the situation. It's those who endure to the end who will finally be saved. What Paul seems to be saying is this type of patient perseverance, well, it's only developed through the weight of suffering. When the stress of affliction bears down on this person, they bear up under it with endurance rather than being crushed under its weight. Think of someone uh, training their body for a sport, right? They only learn endurance by their body being pushed beyond its limits by bearing up under the weight of the squat bar, right? As it it rests on them. If they give up, their muscles are not going to grow. They won't progress. They won't develop the stamina and strength to win the game. 
That's what Paul wants us to see. Without suffering, we won't develop the necessary faith muscles to endure to the end. Second, Paul says that we know that God is not only developing endurance in suffering, but that in turn, endurance produces character. And friends, this word character isn't so much talking about like good character qualities as it is the idea of testedness or provenness. Your faith in Jesus in suffering is found to be trustworthy and authentic because it stood up under the pressure. Later in the, in the New Testament, James and, and Peter picture this idea of a tested faith with the image of smelting gold. Remember those passages? The fire burns the dross off the gold so that it can prove itself bright and beautiful on the other side on the last day. Maybe in a more modern analogy, think of tempered metal right, or tempered steel. Before the steel is, is tempered in the fire, it's a bit flimsy, isn't it? But after undergoing the heat of tempering, it's so strong that it's utterly unbendable. Beloved, in our suffering, God is working in us a faith that is tempered by the flames. Maybe you've struggled with assurance of salvation. How can I really know that I'm a Christian? Well, one confirming sign, it's not the driving sign, but it is a confirming sign, is how you respond to suffering. The fact that you're still here and sitting under the sound of the word and, and worshiping with God's people, friend, that's a wonderful sign. You didn't run away from Christ when trials hit. You didn't deconstruct your faith or whatever the latest lang language is about that. You held on. You endured. You emerged from the flames with your faith intact. God is at work in suffering to produce endurance, proven character, and finally, hope. You know, on the one hand, this hope that we've talked about so far, it's the gift to every single Christian, from the, from the least mature to the most mature. But friends, the way that hope deepens and matures in our hearts is through the fires of suffering. You know, in my experience, if you're, if you're young, my experience being in pastoral ministry and just in the Christian life, if you're young and you haven't experienced much pain and loss in your life, your hope tends to be a little shallow and maybe even a little theoretical. Like, you know it's important. It's in the doctrinal statement, right? It's in the church's statement of faith. But it's theoretical. But when God brings a Christian through the deep waters of suffering, it's then that it becomes real. You begin to set your hope on future glory with every fiber of your being. You yearn for home. Beloved, we can rejoice in suffering because it helps us to see with clearer eyes that our highest joys are not found in this life, but in the life to come. Our deepest scars and sorrows will one day be completely healed by the one with the nail-scarred hands. That our bodies, ravaged by disease and ailments, will one day be made new. The more a Christian suffers in a, in a godly way, the more we long for heaven. The more we ache for a new heavens and new earth where there is only wholeness and righteousness and peace. You know, this, this type of topic of rejoicing in suffering. This sounds crazy to unbelievers because their instincts are not shaped by the word and the spirit. 
But for those of us who are Christians, the assumption is that Paul is making is that more than anything else, you want to look like Jesus. That's the the assumption, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to rejoice in suffering. If Christ's likeness is not your ultimate goal, there's no way you can rejoice in suffering. You'll kick against it. You'll try every route to escape it. You'll try to dull it with things like alcohol and drugs and recreation and, and just busyness of life. And friends, while it's not wrong to pray for relief from pain, certainly, there's something far more important than relief. There's something far more important than escaping the pain, and that's what God is accomplishing in you. Friends, even if you never understand, even if you never understand this side of heaven, the answer of the why, why did God do this? Why did he ordain this or allow this? Even if that thing remains shrouded in the shadows of the mystery of his will, you can still rejoice in suffering because of your unswerving confidence that God is molding you and shaping you and fitting you for heaven. So don't give up. Don't give yourself over to despair. Don't release your grip on God's promises. What Paul's saying is that even though the the waves come, right? Even though the the sorrows like sea billows roll, there's an immovable bedrock at the bottom of the ocean floor that we can anchor our lives to. So that when the wind blows, when our boat rocks and reels, it will not capsize because the anchor holds. We'll carry on firm and resolute and confident in the strength that God supplies. Spurgeon said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Oh, that we might say the same. That's what rejoicing and suffering is all about. We can rejoice in suffering not only because of what God does, but because of what God proves. That's really kind of what Paul sets out in the, in the rest of verses 5 to 10. He expands, really, I think, on what he wrote in verses 1 and 2. Again, kind of showing this connection between the work of Christ and our future glory. So, so how do we know that our hope will not put us to shame on the last day? How can we be confident this, that this Christianity thing is, is not a hoax, right? Not, not make-believe. Isn't that what the atheists accuse Christians of believing, right? It's just a kind of a, a made-up crutch to help us deal with life's harsh realities. Well, Paul's answer in verse 5 is a bit surprising, to be honest with you. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says the reason we know hope won't put us to shame in the end is that we enjoy the experience of God's love right now through the Holy Spirit. Say, John, that sounds a little subjective. That sounds like Paul is talking about my experience. That's exactly what he's doing. It's exactly what he's doing. One of the ways that we know our hope isn't a sham is the internal confirming witness of God the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love in our souls until it overflows. The ministry of God's Spirit within us helps us to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
He enables us to grasp at the heart level how much God loves us. He ignites our affections and yes, our emotions to sense the deep, deep love of Jesus. Friends, have you ever had a moment, I'm sure you have, where, where, whether it's in your personal devotions or maybe corporate worship on the Lord's Day, when you were just simply overcome by your sense of God's love for you in Christ, right? Maybe it's through the lyrics of a song, the words of Scripture that penetrated your soul. Maybe it came through a specific answer to prayer that just kind of left, left you speechless about how good God is in loving you in that way. Friends, you owe the sense of that that sense of God's love, you owe it to the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our future inheritance. And he lets us experience some of that future inheritance and future glory in the present as he causes the love of God to overflow in our souls. But notice, the confirming witness of the Spirit isn't merely subjective, is it? This isn't squishy sentimentality. Again, it's firmly anchored in objective truth, as verses 6 to 8 make clear. Notice the word for, right at the beginning of verse 6. That tells us that what's coming is tied to verse 5, right? And what is the objective truth that anchors our subjective experience? It's the love of God is demonstrated at the cross. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, friends, the subjective experience of God's love that the Spirit pours out in our hearts is based on the objective reality that when we had no power or strength to rescue ourselves from God's wrath. That's what it means that we were weak. No power, no strength to save ourselves. Christ died for us. It's a love that defies human expectations. We, we can imagine a scenario where someone would lay down their lives, or perhaps even you, you would lay down your life for someone that is, that is good or someone that is dear to you, like family or friends. I'll lay down my life for my family in a heartbeat, Right? Maybe it's in your squadron or your battalion. We're committed to them by blood or by duty. That love makes sense, humanly speaking. But that was far, far from the situation when Christ laid down his life for you. You were not his friends. You were his enemy. We were not among the righteous, but among the ungodly. We were not seeking him, and yet he sought us. Friends, the singular qualification to become recipients of God's love in Christ, the singular qualification is your sin, period. All that you brought to the table was your great need, and yet still Christ died for you. Maybe it's time to just let this simple yet profound reality of God's love in Christ just work its way again into the, the soil of your heart. Let it go deep. Maybe you've grown cold. Maybe, maybe God seems distant. Well, friends, if that's the case, call to mind this. We've talked about this before, but I think it's an illustration worth repeating. The barometer of God's love for you is not your feelings or your circumstances. The barometer of God's love for you is the cross. 
That's where his love is demonstrated and forever proven, at the cross. So that now, rather than evaluating God's love through the lens of our, of our feelings and circumstances, we, we then calibrate our feelings and we appraise our circumstances, we evaluate them according to the fixed reality of God's love in Christ. Friend, if you're here and not a Christian, you know, I hope this description of God's love for, for his enemies, for sinners, I hope it just melts your heart. You'll not find a love like this anywhere else in this world. You can search far and wide. You can search long and, I messed that up, high and wide, long and far, right? This is a love without comparison. If you're here today and you're still in your sins, you've not given your life to God through Christ. You've not received the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Friends, you need to realize and reckon with what we talked about earlier. You are at enmity with God. You're an enemy of his. And that means that on the day of judgment, if you remain in that condition, God will rightly judge you for your sins. But at the same time, God is at enmity with you. He loves you. He loves sinners like you. He's not put off or repulsed by you. He's not intimidated by the number of times that you've rejected him or all the wrong that you've done in your life. He sent his own son to pay the price for it so that you might be reconciled to him, that you might be restored and forgiven so that Jesus's life of righteousness might be attributed to you and your life of rebellion might be attributed to Jesus as he bore it on the cross. So friends, don't make excuses any longer for why you can't receive this love. Humble yourself and come to God through Christ. In verses 9 and 10, Paul, once again, he draws this line between the cross and future hope. Notice how he argues. He argues from the greater to the lesser, from the harder to the easier. You see that? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, listen, the most difficult work, the work that, that came at the cost of the life of the sinless son of God, that work's already been done. We have already been justified through Christ's blood, that is, through his death. So then it's, it's nothing, it's nothing for God to rescue those for whom Christ died, to rescue them on the last day and save them from his wrath. Likewise, verse 10, since the hardest work of, of making enemies into friends has already been done, well, surely it's nothing for God to unite the reconciled to Christ's resurrection life and grant that life to us forever. So again, friends, piecing this all together, verses three to 10, or excuse me, verses, verses five to 10. How do you know that your hope and suffering won't let you down, won't shame you? Because God's love is poured out by the Spirit and proven at the cross. It's poured out by the Spirit and proven at the cross. So no matter what's going on in, in your life, you have the immovable, unshakable hope of all that Christ has won for you. And in this, we rejoice. Number three, rejoice in God himself. 
a much shorter third point. Paul caps the entire thing off in verse 11. More than rejoicing in our hope, more than rejoicing in the gift of salvation, we rejoice in the giver himself. We confidently boast and exult in our God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What is the best benefit of justification? What's the greatest blessing of the gospel? It's God. If justification merely secured pardon, but not joy and restoration in God, then it wouldn't be a salvation worth having. Friends, things like, things like forgiveness of sins, the declaration of righteousness, escape from eternal hell, the beauty of the new creation, all of these are just astounding blessings of the gospel, but they're not, me- they're not ends in and of themselves, right? They're the means to the chief end. The supreme good of your salvation is not your forgiveness, but God. It's that we know him once again, just like Adam and Eve knew him in the garden originally. It's that you can see him and delight in him and be changed into the image of his son through the eyes of faith knowing that one day your faith will turn to sight. Revelation 22, you will see his face. You say, John, how do, I, how do I rejoice in God? How do I do that? Well, friends, let me just suggest to you, it's through the ordinary means of grace. It's through nothing special or fancy. It's through the, the prayerful intake of his word seeing his glory revealed in Christ in the scripture. It's through the fellowship of the saints and the corporate worship of his people and the celebration of the ordinances. This is how we enjoy our God together, knowing that one day that work will be complete and we will rejoice in him forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the amazing grace that we have access to, for the amazing peace that you have made through Christ. Father, we're humbled to think that you would do this for sinners like, like us. Father, that you would move toward us when we were helpless and weak to move toward you. Oh, Father, help us to realize experientially all the benefits and all the blessings that you have won for us. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see them through the eyes of faith. Oh, Lord, that we would, would appropriate them as, as real and, 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 and available to us today. For those who are discouraged, Lord, through, uh, whether it's through uh, a battle with sin or whether it's through the circumstances in their lives, Lord, whether it's through grief that they've recently experienced and they're walking through, oh, Father, may they be reminded of what a privilege it is to rejoice in the hope of glory. So that means we can even kiss the waves. We can rejoice in suffering. Oh, Father, help us not to run ahead of you or try to get uh, around the suffering by means of our own. Help us to endure even to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.